Dear Lord, thank you, Father, for the chance to study and to be in a new book this week, Father, a new part of your word. Uh, Father, we know that every page of the Bible testifies to Christ. Everywhere we go, we hear truth. It is not that one place would be better suited to disciple us than another. But, Father, in your wisdom, you decided that we need it all. We need everything that is written there. And in studying your whole counsel, Father, we're given opportunity to understand everything that you have prepared for us to know. You have seen fit to address every need. And while we learn many good things in the book of Genesis, now, we, Father, we turn to a new area of your word, to something that is fresh on our minds, but timeless, as is the rest of the word of God. We know that the church that we are learning about was a church that existed long ago and has come and gone. But the Spirit, Father, is the same. And the mission is the same. And our Lord is the same. And the world as it lives in unbelief is the same. And so, Father, we know that the words you spoke to them are words you meant for us. And we will read them with that in mind. And I pray that the Spirit, Father, would teach us how we can see in their events and in their mistakes and in the counsel Paul gave an opportunity to learn how we may do better ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Corinthians is a... One of my favorite letters of the New Testament and uh, just a fabulous book for every church, for anybody in the body of Christ to learn. And the reason this book is so good, I think, the reason you'll enjoy it, I hope, as much as I do, is because the audience of this book is us. And I don't just mean in the way we usually say that. Everything in the Bible was written for believers for all time. And of course, that's true. But this book has as its audience a city and a culture and a people that are mirror to what we have in the world today. The the similarities between the Corinthian church and the city of Corinth with our present day are uncanny. And so if you cannot find something in this letter that is immediately applicable in your own experience as a Christian, you're not paying attention. I'm not teaching it right. Something's wrong because Corinth is today. The easiest way I could sum up what Corinth was like in Paul's day is to tell you that it was a mixture of New York City, Los Angeles and Las Vegas. If you can take what is most quintessential about each of those three cities and mix them up, you have Corinth. If you have a Bible with a map, this is always a helpful thing in a case like this, trying to see where a city lives is part of understanding its culture. It sits on the Isthmus of Corinth, which is a a protrusion, a narrow strip of land that comes out from Greece into the sea. It actually splits two bodies of water, the Mediterranean Sea and the Aegean Sea. And it's a relatively thin strip of land, and it connects northern Greece with a southern part of Greece called the Peloponnesus. Think of it like a bridge, a land bridge between two larger land masses. And this land bridge, because of its location, was a crossroads of the ancient world. It was a land bridge that connected two coastal ports. The city actually had two ports, one on either end of it, one on the Aegean Sea, one on the Mediterranean Sea. And those ports were both heavily trafficked in the ancient world. And in fact, this was such a strategic location that boats would reach one side of the land, one port, the contents of the ships would be unloaded, put on barges that were then rolled across the land over logs, and moved across land to the opposite port where it would be loaded on a new ship so that the journey could continue in the other direction. So it's like a land Panama Canal. Sometimes if the ship was really small, 
They put the whole ship on the on the barge and just moved the whole ship across the land. This was such a strategic location that everyone since Nero has wanted a canal there. Nero actually started building one, but he never finished it. It did eventually get finished in 1883. And it's one of the most impressive canal projects in the entire world because it's a long distance. They've built a canal across this, this stretch of land. The canal is there today. Now, whenever ships arrive, what do they bring? Sailors. And when sailors arrive, what do they bring? Sin. Lots and lots and lots of sin. It's true then, and it's still true today. And I'm not just picking on sailors, but that is a tradition that is based in reality. In Paul's day, the sailors would bring any number of pagan traditions from wherever they happen to be from, and vice of all kinds. Aristophanes is an ancient Greek philosopher and historian. He wrote in the year 400 B.C., he coined a phrase, Corinthianazo in Greek. It literally means to act like a Corinthian, but its euphemistic meaning was to fornicate. You Corinthianize, it was a way of saying you fornicate. That, that is a reflection of the depravity of the culture in this city. Perhaps the most licentious city in the entire Roman Empire, which is saying something. That's Corinth. I want you to have that mindset or have that understanding of who this people group were as Paul begins to write to them. The city was also incredibly wealthy. So if I'm making comparisons here, the first thing I said is it's a very sinful city. And of course, in our world, we have sin city today, right? That's the label that our city of Las Vegas proudly wears, I might add. Well, the city was also incredibly wealthy. And it was wealthy due to all the trade that passed through this city. Another popular phrase of Paul's day was not everyone can go to Corinth. And the meaning of that phrase was not everyone was wealthy enough to afford it. Not everyone could afford the pricing. And so you could say the city is a bit like New York City in that regard, the most expensive real estate. And then finally, the city was a center for worship of certain pagan gods, particularly Apollo at the Temple of Aphrodite, which was a major tourist attraction, major center for worship in the city. And that temple was manned by prostitutes of Aphrodite. So the service of worship in this temple was to visit one of the prostitutes in the temple. And I I suspect that even in that day, people knew that this wasn't true worship. We say that it was a part of their worship, but I think in reality, most saw it for what it really was. And it's a reason why this city was a favorite for sailors to stop in on their way to anywhere. You can't overestimate how perverse, sexually perverse this city was and how licentious it was, and how much it fed the flesh. And I guess in that respect, I sort of think of it like a modern Los Angeles. So in any way, you have this city that is a a combination of all these powerful fleshly attractions. Now, Paul had an extensive relationship with this city. Paul first comes here in about A.D. 51. So I want you to understand, this is less than 20 years since Christ's death. Not a very long time. And Paul comes into this church, into this city, and he finds in this city the first Greek church he establishes. This is where Paul's ministry gets started in a big way. This is his first success story in evangelism. And as was his practice, Paul always goes to the synagogue first, for the gospel comes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He went into the synagogue, you read this in chapter 18 of Acts, but he goes in, and of course he's met with the same resistance he's accustomed to. He leaves that synagogue and he goes next door. He goes to the house that's right next door, almost as if, to rub it in the face of the Jewish members of the synagogue. And he finds his first convert in the city of Corinth in that home next door, Crispus. 
And from there, he begins to found the Corinthian church. He also meets Priscilla and Aquila in this city, which you probably remember those names. Later, when he leaves the city to go to Ephesus, he takes both Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila with him. They end up being party to his travels for a time. Later in AD 54, and this gets us now to the letter, AD 54, three years after he had originally visited the city, Paul's gone by then, and he gets word through some other people who come to travel and bring the news to him. He gets some disturbing news about what's happening in the church that he founded back in Corinth. And in particular, Paul hears that the church is engaging in many of the same immoralities that define the surrounding community in Corinth. And I want you to understand the context in which that's occurring. The church in Corinth is living in an age in which none of the New Testament is written yet. None of it's available yet. This is also a very Greek city. They have had virtually no experience with the Old Testament, with Jewish tradition, with the God of Israel, with Yahweh. So in the absence of any grounding in God's word, any knowledge of the truth of who he is, none of the counsel that we take for granted now in the Bible, they were highly susceptible to wrong teaching, wherever it came from, and to the influence of the culture in which they lived. What kind of bizarre practices can you imagine might come into this church if we did not have the Bible and any access to history with respect to good teaching? We, we were the first church in the Greek world in an age in which... The truth of who God was was largely limited to Jews. How much bad stuff would you think might wander into this place and be acceptable? And in fact, I think you can see that tendency at work again in the church today, where the word of God and the doctrines of our faith are not taught. What do you see happening in the church everywhere in the world? You see practices of the faithful moving, shifting from orthodoxy to things that are not appropriate. It's inevitable if you don't have the grounding of the word of God. It's inevitable. This church is just an example of it in the worst case because they didn't have anything even at the beginning. But that's also why this letter is so relevant and so contemporary to us. It's a reminder of how easily our practice can get out of sync with what is true if we're not grounded in what is true, if we're not grounded in the word of God. So Paul hears this about the church in A.D. 54, and so he writes to the city a letter in A.D. 54 warning them about the vice and about the immoral conduct. That letter does not exist anymore. It's been lost to history. We learn that later in this same letter in chapter 5. But it must have begun a discussion about what the church should have been doing and a correction of what they were doing wrong. It must have begun that conversation. We can assume as much. Well, then after he writes the first letter, which we don't have, later he hears of more bad news and including the thought that there are now factions developing in the church so that people who say do it this way or people who say no, do it this way are dividing over it. So it's gone from bad to worse. And after he hears of that, he receives a letter from the church and we'll find out about that letter in chapter seven. But they write a letter to Paul saying, Paul. These disagreements are getting to the point where we need someone to arbitrate. We need someone to tell us what we should be doing concerning a bunch of specific concerns. Those concerns move from marriage to divorce, to idols, to spiritual gifts, to giving to the poor. Paul gets this letter and he realizes I've got to instruct this church about all of these details because they're they're not clear on what they're to do. So in AD 56, Paul writes his second letter to the church in Corinth to address both the things he's heard that are going wrong and 
to answer the specific questions that he was asked in the letter he received. So there's two sides to the second letter. He writes, correcting them in general about several things he's heard, and then he goes through and answers every question they pose to him in their letter to him. That letter is the one we call 1 Corinthians. The second letter he wrote, but the one that we have first, is this letter. Now, since there is no New Testament scripture written at this point, the church only had the authority of Paul's word as an apostle in order to understand or to guide them in what they are to do. And because it's a Gentile church and it doesn't have the background in Jewish teaching, Paul's starting from zero with these folks. So as we look at the things he's concerned with and as we look at what he's answering, the questions he's answering, we need to give them some benefit of the doubt, some leeway, knowing that this church had so little to begin with. But if that's true, when you look at how much of what they write about is still common in the church today, what does that say about us? That we do have the New Testament. We do have access to the Old Testament. We do have the history of teaching of the apostles. We have this, and yet the church is still fundamentally dealing with many of the same issues Paul wrote about. It tells you something about the nature of sin in the church. Finally, just to finish the history, Paul makes a painful visit, he calls it in 2 Corinthians, a painful visit to Corinth in A.D. 58, because the letter apparently didn't succeed enough in correcting their behavior. And it was during that second stay in Corinth where he wrote the book of Romans, which I wonder if as Paul sees Corinth running wild because of a lack of understanding of theology and of scripture, if that doesn't motivate him perhaps to write what is easily the most impressive essay on church doctrine that we have, the book of Romans, so that he can say to another church, if you don't have your doctrine straight, you're in real trouble. It's a good illustration of the importance of doctrine and practice coming together. We'll look at that throughout the letter. So now as we turn to the letter, studying epistles is different than studying historical narratives like in the case of Genesis. It's not so much a story that leads us to conclusions or leads us to understanding. It is a teaching specifically on doctrine, teaching on practice in the church. And so to understand that teaching, we need to have the proper context of the writer. Why did he write? What was he concerned about? How does that apply to us? Well, we've had some of that already in knowing what we know about Corinth. But the central theme is the next step of understanding. What is the central theme? What's his main purpose? It is how the church lives a godly spiritual life in light of the truth of who Christ is. So if Romans could be considered the preeminent letter on Christian theology, then the letter of 1 Corinthians is the New Testament's principal letter for pastoral application of theology in everyday church life, how we live what we know. And you can't have one without the other. You can learn all day about Romans, but if you don't understand how it's to live out in your life, it's all just head knowledge and it goes nowhere. So this letter has two distinct sections. We're going to study it in order, of course, verse by verse. The first six chapters are Paul dealing with those issues of misbehavior that he's heard about and he wants to correct. And then... Chapters 7 through 16, the second half of the letter, are the point-by-point point answers that Paul offers for the questions. Now, we don't know the letter he received. We don't know the questions he received. But it's easy enough, by looking at his answers, to figure out what the questions likely were. So as we look at the second half, we will be looking 
at what those questions were. So as we finish that introduction and we open up in chapter one in verse one now, I want you to understand this is an utterly contemporary letter, highly applicable to our day. There is nothing ancient about these issues. There is nothing ancient about the advice. Please don't sit there and say to yourselves that these are problems another church has. These are issues other Christians dealt with. We're beyond that in the church. I hope you'll agree as you look through this that the issues Paul addresses in Corinth continue to weigh on us today. As an example, Paul's going to address the celebrity status of church leaders and the factions that often develop around the celebrities that we often hold up in church life and in the church community. Do we have celebrities? Do we treat certain people as celebrities? The manner and source of our salvation. Is that not a contemporary concern in the church? The manner of our salvation and the source of that salvation. Divorce, remarriage, confusion over the purpose and the use of spiritual gifts, the integration of pagan practices in the churches. Is Christmas pagan? Is Easter pagan? Should we follow them or not? The role and the place of women in the church. So this letter may have been written 2,000 years ago, but it may as well have been written yesterday. So my job is to exposit, to unveil the truth of what Paul has written, not only to a church that lived 2,000 years ago, but to us today. Let's go into chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, just the traditional salutation that Paul uses as he opens letters. He says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Seth and... Sothenes, I always um, sound like I have a lisp whenever I say his name. Sothenes, our brother. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, salutations can mean a lot, and they can sometimes be overlooked. In this case, it's beginning already to set up Paul's approach to correcting this church. Immediately, he deals with the issue of authority. This is not uncommon. He does this in many of his letters, but at the very outset, Paul reminds the church of the source of his authority so they have reason to listen to what he has to say. As an apostle, Paul says that he is, and as we know, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, He is a man whose word and teaching carries real authority for the church. And he says he is an apostle by the calling of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle was, and in fact it still is, a unique title in the church. Men cannot assign this title to themselves or to anyone else. It is not a word like pastor, leader, president, etc., that men appropriate for themselves or that men can assign to one another. It is a God-given title. Only the Lord Jesus Christ may appoint an apostle. And that's demonstrated not only by what we see in the record of the Gospels and in the book of Acts, but we see it here even in Paul's own statement. Paul says, I am an apostle because I was called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle. That's his credential as an apostle. The office is so special in the work of the body, and it's so unique in the church That only God may appoint it directly, and he did so only through his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, the office of an apostle is awarded only through the personal appearing of Jesus Christ. 
Every man who carried that title, as far as we know in the New Testament, did so because he received it as a function of a personal appearing from Christ. Even Paul himself, who received it, as you know, on the road to Damascus. And that office carried special and unique, miraculous signs and powers, which served to validate that person's claim to being an apostle. Because, frankly, anyone can say they're an apostle. That's not hard. But at the point you claim it, someone else could say to you, prove it, and you would have the ability if you were truly an apostle. And we'll look at some of those unique powers in some cases in this letter, but generally you see them in Acts. The ability to raise men from the dead. The ability to heal. The ability to cause men to die at a word from the apostle, as we see Peter doing in the book of Acts. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's third letter, technically, to this church, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul mentions to this church how he did, in fact, perform the signs of a true apostle when he visited them. And that's Paul's phrase, the signs of a true apostle. And that's the reality that shows us that an apostle was a limited role for a limited time for a specific purpose. God ordained, God created, Jesus Christ called, not something that is perpetual and part of the church in an everyday way. Today in the church, we do not have true apostles. That does not mean we can't, but it would mean that God himself through Christ would have to appear to a man, call him yet again, and empower him yet again. And then that person would be going around calling themselves an apostle called by Jesus Christ, and at the chance to demonstrate his power, he would do it in order to demonstrate that God had in fact called him. My view, based on scripture, is that the office ended when the last of those who were called in the first church died. And when the last of the apostles died, the office had met its purpose in founding the church and establishing doctrine and in writing the scripture. And at that point, it was no longer something that we needed. We don't work on signs and miracles today. We work on the authority of God's word. So Paul starts by saying, in a sense, hear me now, for you know I have authority to speak. I am an apostle. Secondly, he says to the believers in Corinth, you were likewise called by Christ into the faith that all share. This concept which is just stated in passing here, but he's going to develop it in the first chapter. This concept that we are all in faith by an act of God, by a call of God, is a central part of Paul's defense against the false teachers that he is contend with in this letter. Paul wanted the church to understand they did not come into this faith that arrived in Paul's first trip to the city. They did not come to their faith and come to their salvation because of an apostle. They did not come to their faith because Paul taught them or anyone taught them, let alone the false teachers that are now coming in claiming there was more they needed if they were to be saved. They came in the same way Paul himself gained his office. Jesus called them into faith. And the fact that God did that through a man, through Paul or or anyone else, is not indicative of a requirement. It does not suggest that the men were essential to the process. It just reflects God's willingness to work through men. But it's God and God alone. They were called by Christ. And Paul is going to reflect on that for two chapters as we open the letter. So Paul's established his authority and the common call of faith that brings all of us into the body of Christ. Now, verse four, Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Jesus Christ, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This pattern is typical. If you've read many of Paul's letters, you should recognize that he'll move out of the salutation and directly into a statement of thanks or a prayer of thanks for those he's writing to. This church was the first Greek church he ever founded, as we said. It really began his ministry. But remember what he did right before he came to Corinth, if you know the book of Acts? He goes to another Greek city. He goes to Athens. And if you remember what he found when he got to Athens, it wasn't a great success story. I mean, he did all the same things, but the response in that city was nothing like the response in Corinth. They wanted to entertain themselves with debate and conversation. But at the end of the day, he saw some believe, but certainly not the kind of citywide response that he was looking for. His result, the result of that disappointment is to leave Athens and go to Corinth. Now, if I can make some assumptions about the state of Paul's mind as he made that transition, it seems reasonable to me that Paul might have been a little discouraged. I don't think he had doubts in God's power or in his calling. I don't mean to suggest he had doubts that he could do what he was called to do. But in terms of the result, he worked hard in Athens, according to what we see in Acts. But he didn't get the result he wanted. And he's gone from that pagan city to another one, a one that's even more licentious, that you might argue is even less likely to respond to the gospel. He walks into this city. He has his typical situation with the Jew. But when he turns to the Gentiles in the city, you remember what God tells him in Acts chapter 18? He says, do not fear for your life in this city, for I have many people in this city. The Lord says that to him before he's converted more than a couple of people. In other words, this was the city, I think, in which Paul saw that encouraging response he needed to move out and do all that Paul did. This is the place where God showed up big for Paul. So when he writes to this church and he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you. I have to believe that what Paul is saying is, thank God I had Corinth. Thank God that Corinth became what Corinth is for who knows what I might have thought if I had gone out of Corinth with yet another failure. He was truly thankful. And he moves from a fruitless Athens to a fruitful Corinth, expecting after that. To have much greater impact in the Greek world. What if Paul had stubbornly remained in Athens, by the way? I've always liked to think about what would have happened. What if he had said, you know what? I know God's going to give me converts. I'm just not giving up in this city. One way or the other, this group is going to come to Christ. Because I know that's my calling. Isn't that our tendency sometimes? We assume we can overcome the objections. We assume that everything is achievable because, after all, God gave us the mission No man, though, can turn meager response into a great response in our own power. It's not in our power to make that change. So if we persist in laboring outside God's will, which would have been Paul's situation had he remained in Athens, then we are the ones creating our own frustration and discouragement. And also, we miss the opportunity, perhaps, of what God was prepared to do with us in another city down the road. So we go where God calls us, but if the results aren't all that we expect, it's simply an indication that we're still to keep moving. And that's the nature of the gospel. It moves according to where the spirit goes, not according to our will. So in Paul's statement of thanks, he says this church already has everything they could hope to receive from their faith in Jesus Christ. This is his hypothesis. This is his opening statement for chapter one in the whole letter. You've already got access to everything you need, which comes to you on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ. First, he says, you have God's unmerited favor. You have grace. Well, that's the number one thing right there. That makes everything else possible. That's the basis for every good thing. 
Because if you haven't got grace through faith, if you have not believed, if you have not received the gospel, if you do not have eternal life, if you're just kind of hanging around on the margins, then none of the other good things are within your reach yet. Because absent faith, it is impossible to please God. For what God makes available to the believer comes as a function of the grace that comes to us in faith. Then he says, secondly, you were made rich in Jesus Christ. Now, not just in the sense of an eternal inheritance. That much is also true. But he says, you were made rich, look, in speech and in knowledge. You don't often hear that today, do you? You don't often hear people saying, you know, because you've come to faith in Christ, you're rich in speech, meaning you're eloquent. You're rich in knowledge, meaning you're wise. We don't tend to think of that as a natural result, but Paul says it is. The believer has access, by virtue of the Spirit of God, to all the wisdom of God and to the ability to carry that truth to the world in a powerful way. And Paul says the proof of that is me coming to you. Paul says you're the demonstration of that. Think of the odds of a man like Paul, a short, from what we know, what we assume out of Scripture, a somewhat short, unattractive Jewish guy, wandering into a pagan city in a rich metropolitan area that's got everything in the world that you could want in that day. Paul's going to come in and convert a city to the faith that doesn't even sound sensible on its face. He says, by my work, through the Lord's working in me, you see yourselves as the church now in Corinth. How did that happen? Because I came with wisdom and speech from God, and you have access to that same thing. It's not unique to me. It's not special. I didn't earn it. It comes as a function of God's grace. Why is he making that case to these, to these people? Because the Greeks respected eloquence and speech and wisdom of knowledge. He says, you know, you don't have to earn something you already have. Thirdly, the church in Corinth, he says, is not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, most people, when they think of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, if they know anything of the book at all, usually their mind turns to a section in about the latter half of the book in which Paul has an extended discourse on spiritual gifts. Because this is a book that's commonly debated, particularly between the Pentecostal and the non-Pentecostal traditions in the church, as to the real function and role of the spirit in the life of the body today. Paul's known for that out of this letter. So this letter is often thought of as the letter on spiritual gifts. Paul begins the letter by saying, you've already got it. You've got all the spiritual gifts God's made available to the church. You don't need to seek for anything in this regard. You have it. The Spirit's alive, and he's there, and he's working in everybody. And then finally, he says, you have the assurance of your salvation. You have an assurance of your glory to come. You could be assured that when the day comes and God judges as he will, you will be found blameless, it says. I love this verse. If you ever have a debate with someone about eternal security and they seem to think that there's some doubt concerning whether we can be assured that we will get into heaven, take them to this verse. Thinking about Corinth again, thinking about the nature of this group of people, thinking about the sin of this city, and even, in fact, the sin of this church, which we're going to learn about. If this church, Paul says, will be assured of being blameless in the day, who couldn't be? I mean, if you could lose your salvation from some sin or because of some immorality, this is the group that could have done it. And Paul says they're going to be blameless. He says it as a foregone conclusion concerning their last day. So why has Paul started the letter this way? Because this church, in its behavior is showing that they do not understand what they obtained through faith alone. And the only reason we can assume for why they don't understand this, because we know Paul would have taught it when he was there, is because someone has come in after Paul 
and has begun to undo what Paul did and teach in a way that's false so that they now have doubts that they never needed to have in the first place. Or they now think they need things that Paul has told them they didn't need or that they already have. These believers are a product of their culture. Every believer is a product of their culture. That's an inevitable truth. And if Corinth is quintessentially Greek, priding itself on its wealth, priding itself on its wisdom, on its sophistication, on its oratory, if that's who Corinth is, then you can be assured that the people in the church are the same. We're always blind to our own culture. We can pick out those idiosyncrasies in other cultures that, to us, look like impediments to godly living. But we're usually pretty poor at picking out the idiosyncrasies of our own culture, which walk us off the narrow path and into bad places. Our willingness as a culture to tolerate certain things in what we say or how we dress, what we watch, what we do, things that we in our culture can be approved for doing, but don't line up with Scripture, become our blind spots. And this church had its blind spots. We have ours. It's just so ironic to me how much they're the same. And that's why I love this letter. As they prided themselves on being wise, as they prided themselves on being rich, as they prided themselves on having great speech, these issues of pride were actually the cause for them stumbling in so many ways. They valued wisdom and knowledge and admired eloquence and speech and they respected wealth and all these things. But Paul says, you already have all of those things in a spiritual sense coming from Christ. And yet, because of your desire to have them in a material sense, in a worldly sense, it's leading you into sin. Sins like seeking to be superior one over another. Sins of division in the church. Sins of not understanding the source of your salvation, of attributing it to a man instead of to Christ. In searching for all of these things, they have begun to commit a particular kind of sin which now dominates Paul's discussion in the first chapter. That particular sin is to begin to find their identity in human associations rather than in their association with Christ. They begin to argue for who has greater honor in regard to their associations. He says in verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Paul begins with what he's heard. The first thing, remember, this first half of the letter is all about things he's heard. First thing he's heard, there are dissensions and there are factions. And as Paul begins to correct them, he names the sin, he offers a correction, but then Paul also offers an encouragement at the end of each one. So he says to the church, I want you all to agree, and I want there to be no divisions among you. Now, that's a dangerous statement, for if it's taken the wrong way, it leads to the wrong thing. Paul's word, therefore, agree in Greek, autos. It means to be of one mind. It means to be of one mind. He's insisting the church operate as one, not as a group of units or as divided groups. He says they are to be complete in the same mind and 
Judgment. I love the word he uses there for complete. It's not the typical word in Greek. It's a very unique word. It's also found in Mark's gospel, chapter one. It literally means to mend nets. When Jesus comes along and finds an apostle mending nets, that's the word that's used in the Greek. So the concept here is I want this church knitted together, not pulling apart. Now, the split in the church is the result of church members aligning themselves with certain leaders. And you see the groups there, right? Each member begins to say, I am a disciple of or I am a follower of one of these men, specifically of Paul or of Apollos or of Cephas. Now, let's look at each of these three men. We know Paul, founder of the church in Corinth. Apollo, we know from other scriptures, a gifted orator who evangelized the Greek world with Paul. Peter, we know, is founder of the Jerusalem church. We don't think Peter ever visited Corinth. There's no evidence of that. So what likely happened is Peter had Jewish converts who traveled to Corinth. These Jewish converts show up. They just fall into the practice that they see happening in Corinth. Corinth has got the Apollosites and the Paulites. And so these guys say, well, which one are you? Well, we're neither. We're from Peter. And so a third group comes into the picture at that point. So as he corrects the church, Paul says, let me ask you a question. Can Jesus Christ be divided? Obviously not his literal body, which is his point, but by association, by analogy, he's saying, therefore, neither should his spiritual body be divided either. We are collectively the body of Christ. But now the Corinthian church was saying, I'm more about being of Paul than I am of being of Christ. I'm more about Apollos than I am of Christ. And Paul demands, stop that. Stop those divisions. But when he says all must agree, he does not mean that the church cannot have disagreements. That's where this could become dangerous. Paul doesn't want division, but that doesn't mean he wants us to compromise on the truth so as to maintain unity. That's not his intent. In fact, disagreements are inevitable when the truth of God's word is at stake. We should defend the truth of what it says. And there do come times when we have to stand up for the truth, even to the point of division. Notice in verse 12. Paul says there were some who were saying, I am of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Even as these factions are developed, there is a fourth faction. But this fourth faction are the people who are saying there's no such thing as of Apollos and of Paul. We're all of Christ. But because others had left the truth in this context, it created a division for those who held to the truth. How could that fourth group have not been divided? Only if they agreed to be of Paul or of Apollos, in which case they haven't solved the division anyway. They've just joined it. By holding to the truth, the division was inevitable. Others had established incorrect thinking. Because of that, right and wrong became divided. Theological error, by its very nature, will always create division in the church because it starts when someone leaves the truth. And departs from the orthodoxy. And those who hold to the truth are therefore forced, at least to some degree, to be separate from that other group. If not in practice, at least in thought or at least in teaching. You can't reconcile truth and error. What is the solution then? The solution has always been the same. Sound doctrine, sound teaching. In the hope of correcting those who have the wrong idea. But at the very least, to make sure that that wrong idea doesn't swamp the truth and eliminate it from the minds of those who would know better. So when you emphasize Bible teaching in the correct way, then the body has the best opportunity to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But if sound doctrine is lost, division arises. Paul asks, who died for you on the cross? Paul says, did I baptize any of you in my name? My identity is in Christ. 
We are not Baptists. We are not Presbyterians. We are not Methodists. We're not even non-denominational, which in my opinion has become a denomination all of its own. We are not conservative. We are not charismatic. We are not reformed. We're not dispensational. Those words have value and they do address certain truths in many cases. But the fact is we're Christians or we're not. Once we're Christian, then in the club, we can talk about some of those things. But we never want our identity to be defined by those things. Because, friends, we can be wrong about some of those positions we take. And when we find out we're wrong, what does that do to our identity? I think sometimes as I teach the truth of, let's say, elections, and I walk into a church where I know that's not the dominant view, if they're convinced to the truth of that view, it actually is an existential issue for them. It's colored their understanding of Scripture to the point that they can't divorce who they are from what it says. And now they're trapped by their identity and they're resistant to understanding the truth of the gospel. Well, I want you to see as we've begun that there's a whole lot in this letter that speaks to contemporary issues. But the truth of Paul's words are eternal, not because our situations are common. They're truth because truth doesn't change regardless of the situation. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that you remind us that our identity is in Christ. The truth we received came by you through apostles who delivered it once and for all for the saints. That truth, it will never change. And when we see opportunity to defend it, let us do it in love, seeking unity and not division. But let us be content, Father, if when those who choose error over truth divide, that we allow that division as a necessity for the sake of your truth. In one day, Father, we will all know everything clearly and we will be united in a way that cannot be divided. We await that day. In the meantime, Father, let us be that ambassador that you've called us to be. Send us out from here, Father, living the life that our words preach. Bring us back with others if it be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.